You are listening to the Krika Lecture Series podcast, produced by the Center for Russia, East Europe, and Central Asia at the University of Wisconsin-Madison. This and other Krika podcasts are available on SoundCloud and iTunes. For more information about Krika's lecture series and public events, visit our website at krika.wisc.edu. students that we send out are in some of the most vulnerable uh, positions uh, as they're trying to uh, fulfill requirements to get uh, dissertation research done. I know at the time when I was a graduate student, I was um, awarded a four-month fellowship that I thought, well, if I watch my budget, I could stretch that to six months. So I rented kind of very small uh, apartment, maybe not in the best area of town, but I wanted to be there longer to get the best data. And so I thought that it was important to just kind of talk through some of the things that you might think about um, as you go in and enter the field. Uh, And even some of this too comes from uh, this great opportunity to study languages not commonly studied at all universities. Often as graduate students are working, uh, your committee is interested in your theoretical work, what type of research methods that you'll use, and maybe they may be great in their theoretical aspect but not have actually been to the field before. So sometimes these conversations happen mostly here around, uh, around this table and also Um, It's set up kind of presentation style, but I'm happy for it to be interactive and have questions come up uh, throughout and uh, also recognize a a lot of the knowledge that we have in this room uh, as we have people uh, from Central Asia, people working in Central Asia currently, et cetera, here uh, with us. Um, As we, um, as I kind of have begun the talk, I have a couple of things just kind of outlining 
of sources of knowledge that you can use to uh, learn information about the risks that you might encounter. Uh, then um, also uh, some kind of tips built in along the way, and then also a discussion of uh, ethics towards the end. But just one of the most important things to think about is that, again, outside of your committee work, uh, you might need to become familiar with uh, the, uh, the potential risks. And I have four or five different sources that we could look at. First of all is talk to other who, others who have recently returned from the field. Um, conferences are great for this. This uh, type of opportunity to learn languages is great. Um, if we uh, think about it, a lot of the people that are here have uh, most recently come from uh, perhaps language study program, sub summer study program, or even travel overseas. And so you can gain a lot of information just from talking uh, from, uh, with your peers um, and hear some of the different stories that they're talking about or updates. Most of the time, these are kind of shared as information or kind of stories that, uh, as you're around the conference table of like what has happened in the past. But um, others who've recently returned is a great source of information. Um, also, um, you may have known of the Central Eurasian Studies Society, which uh, focuses on uh, Central Asia and is more broadly defined than just Central Asia, um, recently completed a fieldwork uh, safety report um, there is, it is interesting, you can look at data like this where um, we asked about, a, we did a survey of about 122 people. I, I helped work on the research field work report. Uh, and then uh, they can talk about changes in risk since 2005. Uh, not, uh, some folks mentioned that it hasn't changed very much, uh, but others have said that it's increased uh, over the years. Uh, you can also use that as a source, not just for looking at how risk has changed, but look at some of the reports. Uh, unfortunately, um, the uh, results in the uh, overall report are pretty vague, and I think that they don't have as much detail, but it's at least good for reading through. It's about 10 pages to read through, and you could see excerpts, something like this. So uh, this is just uh, mentioning that um, there's it's the report has been, uh, took place, or the surveys took place in about 2013, and people are already beginning to be fatigued, and so part of this fatigue of uh, the Westerners or somebody new that uh, people had met before is kind of uh, making it more difficult to uh, get the trust of local institutions, and then also specifically to deal openly with uh, political issues. And that's because people kind of have opened themselves up in the past to share how they feel about the uh, country where they're living at or give their uh, research re uh, results. And then uh, they're published in uh, other outlets and maybe it's not as favorable as they would see uh, within the country. I know uh, there were times when I was interviewing uh, because I deal with education, often there's reports of corruption within the education system that come up. And so uh, when I was trying to interview uh, just about access to edu education and corruption came up. Some people would uh, choose not to report what was really happening. Others would report kind of specific amounts and things like that. So you also, um, it then uh, enters into the data that you're gathering because people are uh, trying to edit themselves for uh, what you might be writing about their own countries and how they feel that it, might, it may reflect on, on them. 
Um, also, reading recently published research. Um, I have a book that came out just in the last couple of years. I really appreciated how Dr. Kalinowski uh, wrote about his work. Uh, so along with the narrative of uh, social history in, in Tajikistan, he wrote uh, very openly about, well, I was trying to get my project uh, uh, started and needed access to the archives of the Communist Party, but folks weren't really letting me into the archives. So as I was chatting with people uh, in uh, the Communist Party uh, offices, I began to notice what was happening, and then he, it changed the trajectory of, your, of his project. And that's really important for us to see as people who are uh, practitioners uh, and gathering data. Um, often we'll have our uh, research proposals set up. We're entering the field in one way. Uh, barriers that are put up by um, all sorts of people or institutions in different ways changes what we have to do. And so uh, it, in the most, in the most um, work that we see, we see these finished, polished pieces, and nobody's really admitting, except around the conference tables, about the difficulties that they, um, they encounter and how that might change their research. Uh, Central Asian Survey has also been publishing some research about um, uh, research that's uh, been taking place. Uh, there was a great article last year uh, specifically uh, called Navigating uh, Safety Implications for Those Being Researched and for Those Conducting Research. And it was an interesting um, co-authored piece by people from, uh, a, one co-author from Central Asia and others from uh, the West talking about data gathering, uh, what the safety implications were uh, in their own, uh, for their own uh, data gathering, and how, what were strategies that they used to mitigate that. And so you can also look at uh, sources um, and recently uh, published work. There's also um, several great uh, textbooks kind of coming out or things that are in, in published volumes, uh, fieldwork dilemmas, uh, is from anthropologists looking at post-socialist spaces. Uh, one of the newest books is called Reimagining Utopias. Uh, there's, um, it's specifically created and, uh, by educational researchers uh, talking about uh, research in the post-Soviet uh, post space. Um, I have a chapter in there with a co-author from Kent State University, Martha Merrill, and we looked at how the IRB uh, really affects people's work in the field. Uh, and so one of our primary, primary goals with that piece is that almost all of us are uh, conducting research in an institutional setting. Uh, lots of us have had conversations about ways that we've had to deal with the IRB, but it hasn't quite been documented. So we wanted to kind of put together a, a book chapter of some of the issues and barriers that IRB puts in place for people so that you as uh, students and uh, emerging scholars can then you know, mention to your IB, IRB about some of the published work uh, that also uh, shows that about how IRB practices can affect field research. Um, so those are some of the uh, sources that you could look at. Uh, if we then, if just to kind of summarize a couple of key risks, uh, is uh, basic travel safety, and then uh, I think it's also important to highlight political safety and risk. 
Uh, and political safety is, uh, risk is both at the individual level, the re uh, respondents, and research assistance level. Uh, so these are kind of things that we'll walk through uh, a little bit more and highlight. Uh, but there's even more uh, other types of risks that you can look at um, based on your field and where you're uh, studying. So here's just kind of pictures of basic travel safety in uh, Central Asia. So uh, these happen to be pictures from Uzbekistan uh, from, uh, and I first started my adventure in Central Asia in Tashkent. Um, the top picture is just mentioning, or pictures of the cash economy. When I was first living there, I didn't realize how much, uh, how uh, much cash you have to carry on you. The first time that I went to the bazaar, I had 10,000 packed away in my pocket in some way, and I thought, well, this is really a large amount, but it was just enough to do the grocery shopping at that time. Um, that was at the turn of the century in 1999, 2000. <laughs> uh, then also, I think it's important to know the different types of vehicles that you have. Uh, when I was, uh, when mostly how I was traveling, especially as a graduate student, is you pick up any taxi that's available uh, and of what was um, kind of the master of a lot of my decisions had to do with a lot with budget. Uh, so um, it's a, just a reminder to look at the quality of cars that you have. Uh, one of my uh, recent uh, colleagues I, I had just posted on social media a picture of four different taxi rides that he took in the last like month that all ended up with like breakdowns, and he thought, you know, it was him, he him, uh, himself that caused those breakdowns, but um, it's part of what's happening uh, there. Also, this is just a picture of a bazaar and noticing that it's a, a different context than where a lot of people might shop. Uh, being aware of the situation is, is helpful. So some of the tips that I have, um, and some of these came from chatting with other people. So um, in doing my own research about fieldwork safety, and other tips. Um, one of the respondents who works in a uh, international organization uh, was really surprised in the academic context that we don't have as great of training for people who are going to be overseas. So that individual who works for an international organization went through safety training. They had specifically gone through heat training, the hostile environment and awareness training, uh, those types of trainings look at travel safety and security, um, self-defense uh, self and uh, prevention of personal attacks, and then even just kind of, if you happen to be driving overseas, uh, looking at preventing and um, reacting to traffic accidents is part of that type of safe, uh, safety training that you could go through. And I thought that hearing that from them, it was good to kind of pass on that these are things to think of. Um, uh, also, in talking with other people about their um, ways that they uh, work through safety issues, is they said, uh, I, one tip that I thought was great was making sure someone else knows where you're going. Um, so again, uh, another uh, friend who is over in Central Asia now just put on social media, uh, just heads up, I'm traveling uh, between these two cities in the next few days. I should arrive on Friday. If nobody hears from me, just let me know that I'm between those two cities or this is my goal. They were doing more kind of extreme mountaineering, um, so it wasn't just traveling from time, from place to place, but um, just a heads up for people to, to know um, who to look for. Um, another 
tip that people had mentioned is actually before you get into the taxi, take a couple pictures of the license plate. You can take a picture of the license plate and send it to um, any of your friends or relatives that you're uh, uh, friends or uh, people that you're staying with um, while you're in town uh, or in country. And then others had specifically kind of hired research assistants or had friends that they would travel with and they weren't going to other locations on their own. Um, I think also it's important to notice that identity, that there are identity differences and risks. So a lot of the kind of maybe crazy things that I did, especially as a grad student, you know, hitchhiking across countries, staying in places that weren't safe or the rest, probably were because um, I happened to be a white male and so I wasn't really thinking about all the different types of risks that's there. Um, we've had uh, different um, women, both in my own graduate program, talk about the different ways that they're in greater risk. Uh, we've, uh, one of the things that can be very difficult is there aren't always necessarily uh, cross-gender friendships. Uh, and so one of the grad students in our uh, program uh, came into uh, trouble and was uh, sexually harassed because she thought she was in a friendship with different people and then it turned out that um, the um, man in the relationship didn't really think that they were um, uh, just being friendly or just hanging out as you might in the US. Um, and there are lots of other cases that I can't personally speak to, but definitely make sure to have conversations um, with women from the, uh, who have been in the field. Uh, Cindy Buckley has been a great mentor as both a sociologist and also uh, someone who's been involved in uh, Central Asian studies and in uh, health uh, studies, migration studies uh, for several years. So she'd be a fantastic resource for uh, women in the, uh, to, talk to, to talk to as well. Minority status affects uh, risk. Uh, so um, I had a chance to work at Nazarbayev University. We did have uh, minority uh, individuals working there, uh, specifically African-Americans or people from Africa themselves. They could not go to a local shopping place without having people stop them, ask them for pictures, et cetera. You just are more, um, um, more, um, I, I don't know, um, uh, more observable or even more of a, a exotic thing to see or be involved with. And so uh, they had a lot of trouble. Um, I think nationality is really important to think about as well. Um, a lot of people who with uh, passports from the West are able to work with a consulate. Uh, you're able to ignore security uh, uh, forces. Uh, when I was in Uzbekistan uh, living there, there were times where I just got used to the policemen trying to call me over um, and noticing that sometimes the policemen were drunk or not. Uh, and I would just ignore them and say, well, you come follow me if you actually really want to follow me but I had the opportunity to leave the country um, or get kicked out of the country, but at least I could just leave and it didn't affect my life. So you have to also be aware um, that even your nationality or citizenship um, creates differences in the, in the risk that's available, um, and the risk that you might uh, encounter. Um, political risk. Um, we do, I mean, one of the other reasons that they had specifically a, a political uh, safety 
report from the Sat Society is that at the time we have there was a graduate student who was of uh, nationality from Tajikistan, but also um, had Canadian citizenship. This happened in 2013. Um, currently, uh, I think there's graduate students uh, in jail in Iran. Um, there's also uh, students who are having trouble in China as well. And um, this is part of the reason why I mentioned that oftentimes our graduate students are in the most vulnerable positions because you're often going out there doing research that is theoretically interesting here in the US but might be of a political risk that you're not quite aware of. So make sure to have conversations with people about things that are happening. So um, students and senior scholars um, have been kicked out of countries before, not allowed back in. Uh, if you do have um, uh, goals of having an academic career, like not being able to access your field really changes the data that you can have and affects your career uh, long term going forward. So you need to kind of look at what's happening. Um, I've um, been fortunate enough that I study uh, inequality in education. Um, often it's not a sensitive topic. Um, I did recently do some field research uh, looking at how parents choose the schools they do. Um, I was told by my supporting organization that asking parents what schools they choose is sensitive, but it really never has been sensitive. I have colleagues from also Indiana University, you're all familiar with, has strong Central Asian studies. So I have colleagues who were also doing dissertations at the same time um, who uh, weren't able to really do their work, uh, had police um, following them, um, because they were interested in kind of uh, how oppositional movements uh, were um, organized and then how it was sustained over time. So that was definitely threatening to the government as far as an organization or as a topic to study. Um, one of the other things that we often forget and maybe aren't even aware of is that our research assistants and participants can be harassed. Um, so I, I am aware uh, of uh, research assistants who kind of um, are hired by, by people who are graduate students working on their dissertation at the time. They work on a, a politically sensitive topic and then for a long time have uh, quite a bit of um, trouble with uh, security afterward. Uh, early, I've, I've talked to some of the people in the field that had been uh, in the field before I had uh, and they were even talking about um, after they conducted interviews that different um, uh, individuals from organizations, uh, from national security organizations came and asked the participants, what was the uh, interviewing, uh, what was the researcher asking, what did you tell them, what happened? And so you can even, depending on your topic, uh, your participants can also be harassed. Um, so those are uh, just kind of things to be uh, mindful of, especially um, as I said, oftentimes we don't really think about our research assistants and our participants who are left behind in this kind of area um, on what the things they are uh, that they could look at. Um, one of the other topics that we could look at is dealing with the state. Um, so um, there are different laws governing uh, research in each country. So recently across the uh, region, it's kind of um, there's different uh, laws that are coming into place about who is monitoring uh, 
the research uh, that's taken place by uh, foreign nationals. Sometimes it's the um, Ministry of Foreign Affairs uh, takes charge of this. Uh, sometimes it depends on uh, the sphere where your work is taking place. So if uh, for me in education, I always have to work with the Ministry of Education. Uh, sometimes even if you're working in individual organizations, they have a power hierarchy and so you have to look at how to um, work with uh, work with the um, state in those cases. Um, I think one of the main things that you could look at is ask your sponsoring organization. So often we're able to access the field um, through uh, organizations that provide uh, research grants or uh, dissertation grants that may be connected to the field. And so they would be uh, great at uh, providing access to uh, or information about how you would kind of work with the state or the hi uh, that hierarchy. Um, also creating networks with scholars to learn how to navigate the bureaucracy. Um, I, there's some senior scholars that have some great points. Often um, what we encounter or what has happened in the past is people are uh, kind of encumbered by the current bureaucratic process or the state that's there. And in, in the past, some people have kind of offered, well, we just need to ignore their, or ignore what they're saying because they're just kind of creating barriers. They don't want us to get the information. Kind of the key goal is to get this information and kind of pass on uh, the, the information, no matter what barriers you have to break or that type of thing. And what's happened is that in Afterwards, a lot of the people in within the bureaucracy have been kind of burned. Um, even uh, there's been uh, stories that I've heard from people uh, even trying to access historical archives, where um, there, a lot of times they have pretty strict rules about what types of material you can actually access. Sometimes they have strict rules where they just want you to take notes and you can't actually take digital copies. And some people go ahead and say, well, it's more important for you know, the scholarly world to have access to this and make digital copies of it. And then what happens later on is that uh, people come into the archives to try and access the materials and they can't even gain access because that trust has been broken. So not only on uh, sensitive political issues has, uh, have, uh, have people encountered problems, but even working on uh, archives and archival research has there been um, problems uh, uh, created by people who are just kind of going against um, the bureaucracy that's there. So uh, we need to be mindful as we're kind of working with this in the systems that are there. Um, as I kind of started off uh, um, this uh, conversation with about, I was talking about uh, scholars who uh, have also suggested that you kind of create networks. Um, oftentimes, um, if you're working in archives or if you're working with certain populations, uh, uh, professors who are based in the universities there or even based in the networks, they have information about how to uh, um, pass the uh, different barriers that the bureaucracy uh, has put in place. Um, they're from, uh, even more familiar with the law of governing research. Um, they may have personal connections with people who are in the ministry who could give approval. And so some, sometimes one thing, uh, something that's very helpful when you first get into the field is to think about how to 
create uh, those uh, connections with local researchers, local scholars who can help you um, in accessing um, and uh, going uh, over the uh, barriers that you might encounter. Okay, so those are kind of the safety or the risk issues that I wanted to talk through. I also wanted to talk about uh, ethics. So um, I have this picture from my own field work, but you can kind of uh, notice one individual person in the uh, field here. Um, uh, this has been a kind of another side area of research for me. Uh, we've, I've been doing research on field work safety, on IRB and the uh, barriers that, are uh, that it affects. And then I've done a round of uh, research now on kind of informed consent and what ethics might be in a central Asian context. And from talking with people, um, and even as I said, we uh, wrote a whole, uh, whole paper about how the IRB itself is flawed, you as an individual in the field are responsible for the, for the ethics that you'll go through. And just like we have um, individual, uh, individuals who have various viewpoints of how you might go uh, against state barriers or other obstacles that institutions in Central Asia put up, um, at least for me, even my mentors uh, within sociology had views about how you get around the IRB. Um, the view of the Institutional Research Board at your institution is just something that is kind of like a piece of paper. They're gonna approve it, but you're gonna be in the field and you actually know better what's gonna happen and that type of thing. And I think that that's definitely true. Um, and uh, IRB uh, across institutions is, is very different. So. Uh, if we look at what uh, some of the uh, people have uh, mentioned is that IRB itself uh, is something that you have to work with and that this is from our interviews with people working on the IRB. Uh, they said they don't really struggle with things, but um, one thing that's gonna happen is that you'll most likely have uh, to provide additional information about the research context and then uh, this person uh, who responded about their personal IRB is that they do get it through, it's just that they don't always understand that um, context. One thing that's been positive about the IRB recently is that in 2019, there were brand new uh, federal policies that went into place that actually help a lot of uh, scholars working internationally. Uh, so uh, IRBs now take into account uh, culture uh, cultural aspects. Uh, this was a change that was multiple years in the making where they realized that IRB policies uh, were uh, flawed in many ways and so they open it up for uh, individuals to, uh, re uh, to respond and then they uh, rewrote policies and beginning in January of this year um, there are also uh, cultural uh, considerations. A lot of times uh, people were working with uh, uh, IRBs each had their own kind of federal mandate, but they could interpret the federal mandate as they liked. Uh, and so um, each institution ended up being uh, pretty different on this. And so some institutions who had a lot of people doing international work very easily were able to look at the argue for some of the cross-cultural aspects and make some changes in, the, in their IRBs. Um, one of the, as we did our research on the, what was happening with IRBs and the barriers that they put in place for people who were, uh, um, who were entering the field, 
is uh, the informed consent process. So um, you can see a couple of examples of uh, reports that were uh, received here about uh, the difficulty with IRB and the informed consent process. Um, informed consent is really interesting. So usually as a teacher, I kind of am interactive and I'm really tempted to throw it out there. Like, what do you see as uh, informed consent? But we've kind of already entered lecture mode, so I'll just kind of tell you how I, how I view uh, informed consent. Um, informed consent is often, we kind of view it as the one document that the uh, IRB requires us to have as some sort of record that the people have actually agreed to what they're doing. But informed consent is both kind of a relationship and it outlasts the kind of basic interaction that you have with individuals and lives with the data um, for a long time. So uh, one of the projects, as, as an example, one of the projects I was able to be involved in was an oral history project um, collected in Tajikistan several years ago. And we had written up kind of an informed consent paragraph that we shared with the people. And we had said, you know, we're just kind of conducting this research. It, uh, your data will be collected and only used for scientific purposes. Um, it'll be used by people who are interested in um, various social science and uh, questions. Um, and later on, as people began to listen to the oral history, um, uh, different stories that were coming up, people were thinking, oh, let's do kind of a public exhibition of this. Let's uh, uh, try and put some of the stories up on the websites. Let's look at these different things. But uh, because when, at the time when we interviewed people, we only said that we would use the information kind of in these contexts, in these ways, then in those contexts is how they agreed to give the information to us. And so even though we thought it'd be a great idea, get people involved in a lot more ways, make it more public, then we just couldn't uh, continue with, uh, uh, with doing that with the data unless we kind of traced back to talking to the people and got their permission again. And so um, with informed consent, um, one of the things that you wanna do is you really wanna think through um, what you're going to be doing and with the data and what might be culturally appropriate. Um, that is one of the things that's most difficult with the IRB uh, because our IRBs are making decisions here. Uh, often they'll have uh, people uh, who are culturally sensitive there, but their viewpoint kind of comes from an individualized viewpoint that individual people can give consent for how their interviews will be used. And in the cultural context of Central Asia, we have a lot of examples of where that's not the case. So some of the tips when we're talking about um, ethics are, first of all, if you can, if your IRB allows it, and it's, it's only in the rare case that they don't allow it, try to plan to receive verbal consent for IRB. Um, most of the time, uh, if your research work involves doing um, interviews, um, then that's very easy to do, um, to receive verbal consent. Um, even for um, surveys, it's often possible, and you can pl plan to look at those things. But even as you enter the field, um, think through what it means to be able to kind of give your permission to openly share your ideas. What is it that would make it easier uh, for uh, the people that you're interviewing 
uh, to give uh, that type of information. So um, if you're in an official institution, should you get permission to protect respondents? Often this is kind of part of the barriers that you've uh, encountered. So um, as you uh, have read some of the work, uh, people have not said, no, you can't access the archives. Mostly it's you go day after day and they're just like, oh, they're not open yet, they'll be open in a few hours and you don't get a direct no, but you just kind of feel that it's not the case. Um, often uh, people who are interviewing, they say, well, you need to ask my, my boss, my manager, someone who's in charge, they, you need to get their permission for me to be able to openly share. Once you get their permission, then I'll open, uh, openly be able to share. I was fortunate enough early enough, uh, early enough in my work that um, in my first dissertation uh, study that I did, I was able to get a letter from the Ministry of Education that said they approved my study, that I'm looking at inequality and the rest, and I had it uh, photocopied. Anytime I went to a school, I could go directly to the principal's office and say, Ministry of Education has said that I can do this research, um, I'm talking to people in the neighborhood, and I had this letter from the Ministry of Education that allowed that. So that type of hierarchical uh, relationship and then the permission all the way from the top just freed people from having to be worried about agreeing to, agreeing to uh, be part of my study. And this has also taken place, I did a, a study in an individual school just looking at gender differences in the classroom and I knew right away that the first person I needed to talk to was that school principal, and I walked in and talked to the school principal, got permission uh, uh, from them to be able to be in the school, et cetera, and then that also freed up what's happening. So think of in your own context um, where the hierarchies come into place. Um, this is a little bit why it's great to look at some of the uh, recent published work. Um, so the article that I mentioned from Central Asian Survey about uh, studying uh, or safety in the field and safety implications. Uh, some people were looking at uh, various religious minorities and religious communities in general, and then they uh, went ahead and sought some um, uh, permission both from elders in the community or from the religious, um, um, the, uh, religious leaders themselves, which then opened up their ability to access people. Um, and so again, they were talking about those networks. Um, so again, this uh, if you're in a community where leaders may give um, permission, that also protects the subjects, so you could look at that. Um, so a long time ago, uh, Laura Adams was in the field, and then when she returned, she wrote a great piece of, about hospitality and status uh, influencing consent. So you know there is a great um, emphasis on hospitality, honoring the people that are that are at your home. And so I, uh, it caused uh, Laura Adams to kind of contemplate afterwards, when I'm asking permission to uh, do an interview and to gather data, and I was in their home, were they treating me more like a guest? So they agreed, but it was maybe not as free as if we were in a different type of setting. And so um, I think that's just interesting to think through. And then also the networking being key. So this is the article that talked about safety implications in the field. Um, what was happening there. And the fact that uh, working within the networks, um, getting permission from uh, various uh, people who are in authority, which allows um, the people that are under them to speak more freely is helpful when you're thinking about informed consent. Okay, so 
Um, let's see. Uh, I do happen to have um, resources. So again, as I said, opened up the talk. Uh, it was really important for me to talk to you because often our graduate students are in the most vulnerable po uh, positions. Also coming out of our kind of CES task force report that I helped work on, uh, we didn't necessarily have resources available for folks. So I kind of started putting together um, some resources that people could look at. Um, I have informed consent templates, basic templates in Uzbek, Tajik, Kazakh, yeah, I think the, in those languages uh, and in Russian. Um, so you don't have to start from scratch doing these types of things. Um, in the fieldwork planning resources, I have a uh, direct link to the CES um, fieldwork uh, uh, report or safety report. I also have a whole bibliography uh, already kind of started there for working in the field. Uh, so as you're developing your uh, research proposals and thinking about what's happening, uh, then it's there. I, I want to start a little blog for people who have just come back from the field to be able to share information, So, uh, but that I haven't started that quite, recent, quite yet. And then I am a mixed methods researcher, so there's household data sets, so if you're a quantitative a data person and you're looking for uh, data on uh, Soviet Union, then it's also there. Uh, but again, it was just kind of noticing that a lot of people we're interested in this and almost everyone has to start from scratch because they're not really networked with people who have the resources available. I wanted to start um, putting those together. So those are also available uh, thanks to Wix. So um, then, uh, and I'm happy to uh, share that link later on. I think last time I sent it to Krusha for them to be able to send out. And then uh, I also wanted to open it up for comments and questions, and also I very much recognize the knowledge that's in the room. So if other people have more safety tips they'd like to share more as a comment or um, reflections, then that's also welcome as well. So thank you all.